Now I'm going to be talking to you about, as Pastor John has prayed, about men of old and regarding missions, those who were strongly believed in unconditional action and yet gave themselves fully to the cause of spreading the gospel. How many of you have ever heard the name William Carey? Would you just simply raise your hand? Okay, many of you have. Good. I saw a few hands that didn't go up, so let me just give you a brief synopsis. I'm going to be talking about William Carey, but I want you, I want you to know before I start who William Carey was. William Carey is called the father of modern missions. He was sent out by the Northampton Association of Churches. His own church sent him out, but these churches worked together. It was a very, very small association. And he went to India to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had many trials and struggles and difficulties, and I'll be relaying some of those to you. But I, I, want, to, I want you to just remember and understand that he is called the father of modern missions. There is a sense in which all of Protestant missions today can be traced right back to England and to William Carey and uh, the Northampton Association sending him out. It's not as though William Carey was the first missionary. I don't want you to think that way at all. In fact, uh, John Calvin sent many men to France to preach the gospel. Many of them were martyred. Uh, Calvin sent men to Brazil to preach the gospel and establish missions and, and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ in, in Brazil. That was an utter failure, at least from a human perspective. Uh, it just didn't work, but at least they went. But, and, and the Moravians were very faithful in sending missionaries prior to William Carey. But the fact is, as far as Protestant missions is concerned, it was William Carey who did that. So with that in mind, I'm going to read you a statement that was directed to William Carey by John Ryland Sr. Uh, when William Carey suggested that they ought to consider preaching the gospel to the heathen. I'm going to read you the two different views of this, uh, well, of Ryland's response to Carey. Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Now that is a quotation from the book Faithful Witness by Timothy George. Another version from another biography by Mary Drury. Um, when Carey asked the question as to whether or not it was the duty to proclaim the gospel to the heathen, Mr. Ryland Sr. is reportedly to have responded, you are a miserable enthusiast for asking such a question. Nothing can be done before another Pentecost. Now, I don't know which one is right. They both could be right, actually. Uh, because they, they both represent the thinking of the high Calvinists of that day. And yet, William Carey, who himself is a very strong, strict Calvinist, was the father of modern missions. But I, I, I say that because there are those who question whether or not you could be a Calvinist and be a missionary. And, 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 and they may go back to this, these historical instances which happened with Carey back in the 1700s. Uh, when Carey was called an enthusiast, that was a very derogatory term. 
Because in those days, to be an enthusiast meant that um, you that you were receiving direct revelation from God and that you no longer believe that the Bible was the only authority for faith and practice but that you could get direct messages from God and so for Terry to be called an enthusiast was was a very very serious charge indeed um, and the fact is during that part of the 18th century You've heard of a man by the name of George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, or John Wesley. Charles was the hymn writer. And there was a great revival. It's called the First Great Awakening that occurred in England and also occurred in the United States. And it was a wonderful time of God pouring out His Spirit when hundreds and thousands were converted to Christ. But the sad fact is that the particular Baptists rejected the revival, this first great awakening, because they considered Whitfield and Wesley to be enthusiasts. And you can read about that in, in the book by Michael Haken, One Heart, One Soul, which is a biography basically of John Sucklin. However, in spite of all that reality and fact amongst Baptists in the 18th century, the great modern missionary movement came out of particular Baptists. If you can imagine such a thing, you just as well imagine it because it's a matter of historical fact, isn't it? Well, what I want to do is I want to talk to you first about a form of Calvinism that has hindered missions, that hindered missions in the 18th century, and it hindered evangelism amongst Baptists. I do this for two reasons. One, because we must not close our eyes to the fact that there is a form of Calvinism which does hinder missions. And historically, there was a form of Calvinism that hindered missions. And we must avoid that form of Calvinism in our day, lest it rear its ugly head. It is a false Calvinism. And I want to illustrate this by talking to you uh, about a man by the name of, of, um, of Fuller, Andrew Fuller. Uh, Andrew Fuller was a man who, along with William Carey and John Sutcliffe, and also John Ryland Jr., Sr.'s son, believe it or not, were the big proponents of foreign missions. And Andrew Fuller was the one who collected money, who gave himself in England uh, to holding the ropes, as it were, to making sure that Carey had this adequate support that he needed over in India to continue the missionary work. Well, when Andrew Fuller first began his ministry, uh, in, in, when he was 20 years old in 1775, he was ordained and he was a high Calvinist. Later he called this high Calvinism false Calvinism. And Fuller um, was taught that you couldn't call men to believe on Jesus Christ until you first of all saw an indication of the Spirit's work in their lives, and only then could you call them to Christ. So that it became a matter of the preacher discerning whether or not someone was interested, if you please, before he could invite them to come to Christ. And that's what Fuller was taught, and that's the way Fuller exercised his ministry. When he was ordained, a man by the name of John Paul came to Andrew Fuller and said to him that he ought to read Edwards. But 
uh, Fuller thought, okay, I'll read Edwards. And so he picked up the wrong book. He read a man by the name of John Edwards in a book called Veritas Redux. It made no sense to him because it had nothing to do with the issues that, that uh, Paul was talking to him about. Two years later, in 1777, he realized his mistake, and he had immersed himself in John Gill, but he began, and, and he began to read Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, and he also saw that there was a difference between John Gill and John Bunyan. Bunyan, you know, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. He saw that Bunyan was freely offering the gospel and calling men to repent, that it was the duty of all men to repent and believe the gospel. And, and then he also was joined, he joined this Northampton Association in England and had a close friendship then with John Ryland Jr. and also John Sutcliffe and a little later with William Carey as well. And he found out that they were wrestling with the same questions that he was wrestling with. And that was, to whom should the gospel be preached? Should men be told that it is their duty to believe the gospel? Well, he came to a firm conclusion that indeed that is what we must do. Tell men they must believe. It is their duty to believe. And if they don't believe, it's their own fault if they go to hell. Which, of course, is what we believe. He came to call this high Calvinism, of which he was a part, false Calvinism. And that's how he labeled it, and that's how he referred to it in the rest of his ministry, the rest of his life. He wrote a book entitled, The Gospel Worthy of Acceptation. He didn't have any intent to publish the book, but his friends prevailed upon him, and he did publish it. The subtitle given to the book, the edition, second edition, 1801, was... The duty of sinners to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, I hope to all of you here tonight, that is not a startling statement. The duty of sinners to believe in Jesus Christ. But it was a radical departure from what the particular Baptists, many of them taught in the, in the late 1700s. It was, just, it was just a radical departure. Um, and he basically said, one does not have to believe that he's the object of special grace before he believes on Christ but rather that one must understand that it is his duty immediately to believe on Jesus Christ, not to wait to see whether or not there's been some exercise of what he can discern, discern of the Spirit of God in his life. Now, Fuller was called an Arminian in his day. He was called an Arminian because he said it was the duty of men to believe on Christ. So the Arminians... Um, uh, so, so the Calvinists wrote against him because they said he's an Arminian. The Arminians wrote against him because he was a Calvinist. So he was taking flack from both sides, from both camps in his day. He was a very strong Calvinist. Um, so he was showing that sinners carry the entire blame for their damnation. It's not God's fault. It's the sinner's fault because he has a duty to believe and he decides and determines not to believe. You see, what was happening in those days was this. The people in the pew, under this false Calvinism, basically could sit in the pew, listen to the preaching, and attend what, they, what the means of grace, that is, attend the church services, read their Bible, 
And as long as they didn't have what they considered to be a movement of the Spirit in their hearts, they could then blame God because God wasn't doing anything for them and because God wasn't doing anything for them. Therefore, they could not believe. And therefore, it was God's fault that they didn't believe. You see, that's the type of thing that was happening. But Fuller and Sutcliffe and Carey and Ryland Jr. said, oh no, to the people in their congregation, it is your duty to believe. And you are to blame if you don't believe and if you don't come to Christ. Well, you see, that is foundational for the whole cause of missions, isn't it? When, when Ryland Sr. said, we've got to wait for another Pentecost, what he was saying this, he said, before, before the gospel is to be preached in India or to other places in the world, before the gospel is preached there, we've got to see some movement of the Spirit. And when the Spirit of God moves, then we can go and tell them that they can come to Christ. Ah, but you see, Carrie and the rest of them said, no, it is our duty to preach the gospel to them. Because Jesus Christ said we're to preach the gospel to every creature. We know he has his elect. We don't know who they are, but we know it is the duty of every man to believe the gospel. And it is our duty to preach the gospel to every single creature. So it was this theological journey that Fuller took along with his friends, with Carrie and the others, that led them to the point where they said, the gospel must be preached and we must reach the farthest regions of the world. That's very important for us to understand as we think about the history of missions in our day. And that is what must propel us. It is the duty of men to believe. Anybody that uses the doctrine of election as an excuse for not witnessing and not evangelizing has, has, really, has really fallen into a false kind of Calvinism. The gospel is to be preached to all men. Well, having said that, then, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about Fuller, or talking about Kerry, I should say, who went to India, and a little bit about his life, and then if we have time, I want to talk about Adnarm Judson. There's many others that we can speak about as well. Adnarm Judson was the first man from of the United States from America to go and preach the gospel in, in, in another country. He went to Burma. Uh, we'll, we'll get there if we, if we have time. But let's talk about Carey. Did the doctrine of election motivate William Carey to preach the gospel? Um, and Carey believed the doctrine of election, unconditional election, just as much as Fuller did as the rest did. In fact, their confession of faith was this confession, the second Second Baptist London Confession of Faith of 1689. That was the confession to which they subscribed, from which I've read to you in the previous session. C.H. Spurgeon had this to say about Fuller, uh, Carey, I should say. He says, Carey was the living model of Jonathan Edwards' theology, or rather, of pure Christianity. His was not a theology which left out the backbone and strength of religion. Not a theology, on the other hand, all bones and skeleton. A lifeless thing without a soul. His theology was full-orbed Calvinism. High as you please. I read a parenthesis here, not false, but high as you please. Strong belief in the unconditional election of God the Father giving these people to the Son for whom He died. A full orb Calvinism, high as you believe, but practical godliness, solo, 
that many called it legal. In other words, he was a very godly man who lived a very strict and careful life in his walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what did Carey do? What did this father of modern missions do? Well, it would take me an hour or more. And I, if you haven't read a biography of Carey, please do so. Uh, Timothy George's biography, Faithful Witness, is an excellent biography. Mary Drury is an earlier biography, and, and that also is an excellent biography of, of William Carey. Um, but uh, it, it'll, it'll stir you, it'll shame you, it'll, it'll cause you to, to pray more, and that God will raise up more carries and more people to preach the gospel in faraway places. Uh, what Carey did was, he, he had such a burden for the nations. He was a repairer of shoes, a very poor man. And he takes scraps of leather, and he did all the research that he could do, and he'd write on these little scraps of leather the name of the country, and how many people they had, and whether or not in his research there, were any, there was any Christianity in those countries. And so he had a map of the world with these, made up with these little scraps of leather that were good for nothing else, and then he'd pray over those scraps of leather and pray for the world, as he's, and, and, and God would be pleased to send preachers there. He knew that if, if the gospel's to be conquering the world, preachers have to be sent. He knew that. He believed it. Um, he came up with the phrase that we're so familiar with, attempt great things from God, expect great things from God. Well, it's a long story. I don't have time to tell you it all, but I'll just tell you that he did go to India. He went to India with a man by the name of John Thomas. John Thomas had come to this small association of Baptist churches in Northampton, painted this glowing picture of India. How it was you could go there and you could preach the gospel. There was freedom. And, and uh, John Thomas had been there. And so um, then he prayed and determined that Carrie would be the one that should go. And he did go. His wife refused to go with him. But as they were leaving the port, uh, fog settled in and they couldn't get out to sea. So they had to turn around and come back. And Tom, John Thomas said, let me go and talk to your wife one more time. Carrie says, it won't help. She won't come. Thomas said, give me a chance. So he went back and talked to Dorothy. Dorothy said, okay, I'll go with the children. But my sister Kitty has to come along. And so she went with Carrie. Uh, and uh, Carrie was going to come back and pick her up later. But anyway, they, they got over to India. They landed in Calcutta. And a short time after they landed there, John Thomas deserted Carrie took all the money, all the money, and rode around like a king um, with people carrying him in one of these, what do you call them? Um, pa pal palaquins? Palaquins, one of these palaquins. And, 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 and Carrie was penniless. And here he had his wife, uh, two children, his sister-in-law. He had to move out to a tiger-infested jungle and, and, and fortunately, there was a man there who eventually married Kitty, who would take them in and keep them. And Carrie was clearing jungle during the day, and at night he was learning the language, and, and, and uh, uh, the language that needed to be learned for him to minister there. And his wife was railing against him, Kitty was railing against him. Life was miserable, but he kept at it. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. But I'm going to give you the answer. Why did he keep at it? Well, I'm convinced he kept at it because he knew 
that only by the preaching of the gospel would people be saved. And he knew that when God sends a preacher, there's going to be people that are there to hear it. And so he kept at it. Well, would you believe that after he was cleared away this place where he could plant some seeds and grow enough food to, to, to at least feed his family, John Thomas came back and repented and said, please come back. Back to Cal Calcutta. And I'll, I'll help you in preaching the gospel. What did Kerry do? He went back to Calcutta. And, and, and with, uh, with John Thomas. Well, he learned the language. And I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff here. But I just want to show you some of the trials that he went through. Then his wife became completely deranged. She, she even went about the streets... Uh, accusing him of adultery, which was totally untrue, and everybody knew it was untrue. He had to keep, but he kept her in the home. He refused to lock her up. And he tended her. He continued to study the language, and he continued to um, preach once he learned the language as best as he was able. He persevered. Um, he, um, it was seven years friends before he saw his first convert. And guess what? That first convert came as a result of the witness of John Thomas. Um, but he rejoiced in it. And then, of course, there were many other converts that followed. In 1803, Carey told Fuller that he had the vision of translating the scriptures into ten languages. Fuller thought, well, that's very ambitious. To translate the Bible into ten different languages... And understand, Carey did not have a college education. He was self-taught. He learned these languages on his own, by his own struggle, by his own persistence. He said, I'm a plotter. I can't do much, but I can plot. Well, he plotted all right. Well, by 1837, that's just a little over 30 years later, Carey had, and his associates, had translated the Bible into 40 languages. And Carey himself had translated... Uh, six languages, the whole Bible, and been and translated portions of the Bible into 29, 20, 29 other languages. Now this man was a strong Calvinist, friends. If Calvinism, if true Calvinism, were hindered or a hindrance to missions, you can't understand Terry, can you? He was a strong Calvinist, and yet he persevered. He had a heart for the gospel and a heart for preaching the gospel. And that is what he did. Um, time will not allow me to tell you about Adoniram Judson, but just just a snippet here in, in a couple of minutes about Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson too is a very strong Calvinist. Uh, he went out. He was he went out as a young man. He married a woman by the name of Anne Hazeltine, and um, she was a remarkable woman. Uh, he. He took her over to uh, Burma. They met Carey, and on the way over to Burma, by the way, he became a Baptist. He started out a congregational, but he read the New Testament. He was reading the Greek New Testament, and he came to Baptist convictions, which means he lost his support from the congregationalists. But the Baptists did pick it up, and he was able to survive. He eventually went to Burma with Anne, and then there was a war between Burma and England, and that war. Uh, every, Burma thought that anybody that, 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 that anybody from England was a spy 
Adnar wasn't from England, but they couldn't distinguish between one being from America and one being from England, so he with two other men were put into prison, and terrible suffering that they endured for three years, and has a time ministered to all three of the men, and it really led to early, to early death. But Adnar and Judson, very depressed after this, after the death of Anne, continued on, and he translated the Bible. He loved to preach, but he knew he had to translate the scriptures. And he translated into Burmese. And what I have found out, much to my surprise, is that to this very day, to this very, very day, Adnard's Judson's translation in, from the 1800s is still the Bible that's used in Burma. They said it can't be improved upon. He was a genius with the language. And he was able to capture everything in that language and uh, they've said that nothing can be improved on it. Well, time would fail to tell me of many others too. William Chalmers Burns, a great missionary over to China who, who uh, preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and others, too numerous, who were strong, strong Calvinists and yet with a heart. And I, I submit to you that if we're strong Calvinists, it means that we've got to give ourselves to the preaching of the gospel because God is a people. And where the gospel goes, suffering follows. But we can suffer for the cause of Christ because Jesus Christ has a, God has a people that he's given to his son and the gospel needs to be preached to them.